0: The United Nations Treaty to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. nay saying experts said that it would never work, it would never pass, the nine nuclear nations will never give up their nuclear weapons, and to think they might was delusional. But then the treaty gets passed by 122 of those United Nations, and then it gets its 50th ratification on October 24th, and now is set to gain force of law as of January 22nd, 2021. And while the nuclear bully states insist it will have no influence on their policies, you hear from someone who has worked directly on passage of this groundbreaking international treaty and who understands how
1: these things work, and she tells you, We have seen this work with, for example, the Landmines Treaty, which the United States has still not ratified, and yet the U.S. under Obama declared that it would stop using landmines other than in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea, and it stopped selling landmines. It stopped manufacturing and selling cluster bombs as well, even though it's never ratified that treaty. So we can see the ways that over time, the stigmatization impacts that international law has, even on countries. That refuse to be bound by the treaty are still very, very impactful. Well,
0: when you realize that stigmatizing nuclear weapons under international law has the power to galvanize action against them, even in countries that don't sign onto the UN treaty, you catch a glimmer of hope that there just might be a way out of that deadly, uncomfortable seat that we all share. on what it took to conceptualize, strategize, and pass into law the United Nations Treaty to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. We talk with Ray Acheson, director of Reaching Critical Will, the disarmament program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, otherwise referred to as WILF. Ms. Atchison is one of many civil society activists who worked for more than a decade to get the treaty formulated, strategized, passed, and ratified. She was in a lot of the rooms where it happened, and will share with us what it was like to be there. And we will also get a rebuttal to last week's NPR Science Friday with Ira Flato, that touted floating nukes off the coast of, say, New Jersey, as a terrific idea. Not... The rebuttal is coming from Paul Gunter, director of the Reactor Oversight Project for Beyond Nuclear. We will also have nuclear news from around the world, numbnuts of the week for outstanding nuclear boneheadedness, and more honest nuclear information than anyone is paying attention to right now because, hey, the U.S. election. All of this news is coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020, and here is this week's nuclear news from a different perspective. First, an update on the United Nations Treaty to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. The mayor of Nagasaki City has repeated his call for the Japanese government to ratify the U.N. treaty banning nuclear weapons, adding that Japan knows more about the horrors of nuclear weapons having suffered two atomic bombings during wartime. And while Finland did not participate in the negotiations leading up to the treaty and did not vote for it, public opinion is in favor of the treaty, with one poll showing that 84% of Finns would support signing it. Three parties in Finland's coalition government also want the country to join. In Utah, the smart rats are jumping off the ship, as three more Utah cities voted this week not to. To move forward with an unproven, first-of-its-kind nuclear power project. Bountiful, Beaver, and Heber are the latest municipalities to exit the small modular nuclear reactor pursuit, following in the footsteps of Murray, Kaysville, Lehigh, and Logan. Bart Miller, Heber Light and Power's chief financial officer, said, There's enough things wrong with this project that it made it really scary. We're just a bunch of little utilities in the state of Utah trying to do a $6 billion nuclear power plant. That's seven cities down, 22 to go. Who is next to come to your senses? Nuclear power plant owner-operator Exelon could sell or spin off its nuclear plants. But credit research firm Credit Sites believes the business would struggle to find a buyer. In other words, nobody wants them. Research scientists from Harvard University say that areas around fracking sites have up to 40% more airborne radioactive particles and suggest not living within 12 miles of a fracking location because it could make you sick. We'll have a link up to that article. And now...
2: Nuclear
0: hot seat, nuclear
2: hot
1: seat, nuclear hot seat,
0: On NPR's Science Friday, last Friday, October 30th, host Ira Never Met a Nuke Guy Didn't Love Flato had a 20-minute interview on the wonders of floating nuclear reactors with a genially and terminally prepped nuclear engineer. While Flato lobbed prepared puffball setups, hardly a journalist's probing questions, at this engineer, At the very opening of the segment, he dismissed any objections to nuclear in a single run-on sentence. After subtly equating objection to nuclear as a Halloween-worthy fright, boo, he went on to dismiss all concerns, saying with only the slightest hint of condescending smirk to his voice, you know the arguments for and against nuclear, expensive to build, potentially risky to run. We don't need them because we can develop enough green energy to do without them. And no one wants one in their backyard, unless, of course, you live in France, where they happily draw most of their power from, get this, non-polluting nuclear power plants. And after that lie, he goes on to blah, 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 all the program nuclear industry talking points, including the lie that nuclear energy generation is carbon-free. When between the entire nuclear fuel cycle's carbon-intense mining, manufacturing, transporting, to say nothing of the forever radioactive waste management and carbon-14 production during energy generation, it most definitely is not carbon-free. Hey! Hey! Ira! You're always accusing those who oppose nuclear as having a bias. How about some balance to your pro-nuclear bias? Where is the fairness doctrine when we need it? This is why, Ira Flato and Pseudo Science Friday on NPR, you are this week's Nuclear Hot
1: seat. Not-
0: Well, I couldn't leave it at that, without getting a countering opinion, which came first in the form of an extremely articulate Facebook post by Paul Gunter, director of the Reactor Oversight Project for Beyond Nuclear. Once I read that, I just knew I had to bring Paul on the show to share his thoughts with all of you. Paul Gunter, great to have you on such short notice for us here on Nuclear Hot Seat.
2: Well, thank you very much for having me. On
0: NPR Science Friday, just yesterday, October 30th, host Ira Flato had on a very, I would call him slick and well-rehearsed, pro-nuclear engineer who was touting floating nuclear reactors offshore as the perfect place to put them. And he did cite possibly off the coast of New Jersey.
2: What's wrong with this picture? First of all, this is nothing new. In fact, Westinghouse, had the original plan back in the 1960s, early 70s, to float nuclear power stations off the coast of New Jersey for the what they called the Atlantic Nuclear Project. And these were Westinghouse ice condenser reactors. Because they were going to float them on a barge, the containment system for the reactor, which is a, the chief safety system to contain a severe accident, was smaller than the other standard-sized reactors, and it also was light on concrete and rebar. The idea was that they would float these reactors outside of uh, major populations, which would not require an evacuation planning zone. So they were going to essentially build an undersized containment system for a nuclear power station. And rather than rely on a robust containment, they were going to put in a compensatory measure, which were um, hydrogen igniters, so that the hydrogen gas that might be generated during a nuclear accident would be burned off by these electrical igniters inside the containment rather than accumulate into an explosion that could disintegrate the containment, like we saw at Fukushima. But early on in the 70s, groups like the Union of Concerned Scientists, chiefly uh, Robert Pollard, who was a whistleblower that resigned from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, because clearly the agency and the industry were compromising safety for money. And that's exactly what this Westinghouse design was to do. The thing that really disturbed me about the um, Science Friday interview was that the reactor engineer that was being interviewed said that that project lost its customers. And in fact, if he had really been up on his homework, he would have known that the uh, U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission, Westinghouse, and several utilities— went ahead and constructed 10 of these reactors around the United States on land because they didn't trust building them out at sea. So these containment systems that were identified as vulnerable to severe accident failure have been built on land. These include Watts Bar Unit 2, Catawba 1 and 2, and several other reactors that are now operational. They're even getting license extensions, but the containments are very likely to fail if they're subjected to severe accident conditions, just like we saw with the uh, GE Mark 1s at Fukushima.
0: Another point that Flato made equated floating nuclear reactors with reactors that are now in use on US aircraft carriers and submarines. Is that a fair
2: equivalency? No. And the reason being that, you know, one of my mentors, Robert Pollard, the same engineer who exposed these inferior containments for these ice condenser reactors, you know, he basically said, you can build a safe nuclear power station or you can build an affordable nuclear power station, but you can't do both. And the idea of building propulsion reactors that are built by the U.S. government military. These are smaller reactors. They do run at a risk. They all generate nuclear waste, which ultimately is a safety issue because there is no management system for nuclear waste. But to build offshore power reactors that float, these are commercial ventures. Well, I think that what we have seen time and time again is that these commercial ventures don't make money. And so the operators, the electric utilities, are put in this position of they will sacrifice safety margins to build profit margins. That's why we're seeing so many reactors closing, because they are not able to maintain that differentiation between safety and profit. And so they're clearly sacrificing safety for these uh, financial margins, and some are not even able to do that, and therefore you're seeing more and more reactors closing. Ira
0: Flato has kind of a reputation within our movement as putting out pieces that are very pro-nuclear, but not showing the opposite side of the coin, not providing balance. Has there been an attempt by you and Beyond Nuclear or other groups that you know to get on his show? And if so, what, if anything, has been the
2: response? Even more broadly, it's uh, National Public Radio, NPR. We've talked with producers there because this bias, unfortunately, I have to say my opinion is that it is a commercial interest you will notice that natural that uh, national public radio carries advertisements from the nuclear energy institute quite frequently and we've experienced an imbalance in carrying messages contrary to the uh, nuclear industry and it's not just science friday but We've seen the same bias occur on All Things Considered and Morning Edition. I think that they sort of figure, and again, I'm referencing producers, that the um, anti-nuclear movement carries a bias that's less credible than the pro-nuclear movement has its own bias. Well,
0: let's see what we can do about getting a copy of what you've said and our response to the producers at NPR and see whether anything will make a dent. For now, Paul, thanks so much for making yourself available here on Nuclear Hot Seat.
1: Thank
0: you again for having me, Libby. Paul Gunter, director of the Reactor Oversight Project for Beyond Nuclear. By the way, the full list of the 10 nuclear reactors built on land in the U.S. using this lesser containment structure are Catawba 1 and 2 in South Carolina, Cook 1 and 2 in Michigan, McGuire 1 and 2 in North Carolina, Sequoia 1 and 2 in Tennessee, and Watts Bar 1 and 2, also located in Tennessee, between Chattanooga and Wattsville. If you live anywhere close to any of these, you might want to drop a note to Ira Flato or his handlers on Twitter at iraflato.com. In other news... In Japan, there have been 269 compensation claims linked to work at Fukushima, including six cases of workers who developed cancer or leukemia because of radiation exposure. Regarding Japan's delayed but still intended release of radioactive water from Fukushima into the Pacific Ocean, South Korea's ruling and opposition parties both criticized that country's foreign ministry's response which considers the handling of the contaminated water as Japan's sovereign issue. One lawmaker said countries have the obligations to prevent maritime pollution and that legal action must be taken against Japan. In the U.K., 90% of the discharged plutonium waste at Sellafield, a large multi-dysfunctional nuclear site in the north, are on the Cumbrian mud patch, below which lies a planned coal mine. We will link to that article And in Ceylon, unusual amounts of radiation have been found in soil and sand that is sold for construction purposes to local businesses. A national investigation has been called for. We'll have this week's featured interview in just a moment. But first, well, we made it through the election. As I'm recording this, I do not know what results, if any, are known. But no matter who wins which races or who loses... Whether Congress goes blue, red, or purple, nuclear will still be an issue and a problem, and it will not go away. And the nuclear industry will still be pouring millions upon millions of dollars into their PR propaganda to convince the populace that more, more, more nukes is the cure for everything from climate change to national security to eh, the common cold when it's really the ongoing source of a planetary poison with the potential to do us all in, whether quickly with a bomb or slowly through radiation poisoning and damage to DNA. This is an issue that needs to be addressed for what it is, a technology that harms people and the environment while making a small sector of the population very, very rich. And we need to know the facts in order to take meaningful steps to turn this around while there's still a possibility that we can. That is why you need Nuclear Hot Seat. We know where to look for the nuclear story, know the questions to ask, so that we can report the ongoing, evolving nuclear truth that the nuclear industry would rather we not hear about, let alone understand. And mainstream reporters don't know to ask. That's why the time would be right now to support us with a donation. Just go to nuclearhotseat.com and click on the big red donate button to help us with a donation of any size. And that same red button is now where you can set up a monthly $5, same as a cup of coffee and a nice tip to the barista here in the U.S. Please do what you can now and know that however much you can help, I am deeply grateful that you're listening and that you care. Now, here's this week's featured interview. Last week's big nuclear news around the world was the 50th nation's ratification, thank you, Honduras, of the United Nations Treaty to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. That benchmark ratification brings the treaty into force of law in 90 days from the ratification, or January twenty-second, 2021. Mark that day on your calendars. To look beyond the headlines and usual talking points of this landmark achievement, I spoke with Ray Acheson. She is director of the disarmament program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, referred to sometimes as WILF. This is the oldest women's peace organization in the world. For a little background, in 1915, women from countries at war with each other and from neutral countries came together in the Hague to discuss solutions to the causes and violence of World War One. They founded WILF as an organization with a mandate to challenge militarism, patriarchy, and capitalism as the roots of war and violence. As you will hear, that's what they're still doing. I spoke with Ray Acheson on Friday, October 30th, 2020. Ray Acheson. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thank you very much. Let's start out with a little bit about you. What is your background, and how did you get into working on nuclear issues?
1: Right now, I'm with the Reaching Critical Will program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. WILPF is over a century old. It was founded in 1915 during World War One, and I've been with WILPF for the last 15 years working on reaching critical will which is the disarmament program before that i was doing some work with a woman named randy forsberg who was a leader in the nuclear freeze movement back in the 1980s and i worked at a little organization that she ran and before that was doing a degree in peace and conflict studies at the university of toronto So I've always been interested in social justice, peace, conflict, and sort of got into nuclear weapons work through meeting Randy and wanting to be part of the activist tradition that had been challenging these weapons for decades.
0: Where did the idea for a treaty through the United Nations first come from? How far back does that idea
2: go?
1: Well, there's been the pursuit of a treaty at the UN for a very long time or, or a treaty between the nuclear armed states to get them to negotiate multilaterally with each other. But this idea of pursuing a treaty that would only be negotiated or primarily be negotiated and championed by the non-nuclear armed states is a more recent idea. I and mean, it comes from the decades of frustration of the nuclear-armed states not only not engaging in disarmament, but actively re-engaging in investments in their arsenals and building up the capacity of their nuclear weapons. And so that sort of came out of the last cycle of meetings around the Non-Proliferation Treaty in 2010 and looking at, then under the Obama administration, the rhetoric for disarmament that was not matched by actual policies or practices. And looking at, from that time on, the lack of engagement by the nuclear-armed states and the deliberate walking back of all of their commitments over years that they'd made. So it was partly because of that, but it was also in part because of the lessons that we learned from the banning of landmines and cluster bombs, which were both done through treaties, not at the United Nations, but through interested states that were really concerned about the humanitarian effects that these weapons were having on civilians around the world. And so the knowledge and the community that was built up through prohibiting those weapons um, was then deployed again against nuclear weapons.
0: What were the groups and who were the people who came together in 2010 to start this process moving forward?
1: Well, it was a collection of the governments that had worked on the processes to ban landmines and cluster bombs. So countries that you can see now are part of the core group on banning nuclear weapons, which include Austria and Ireland, South Africa and Nigeria, Brazil and Mexico, along with New Zealand, Thailand and a few other countries um, that have been really actively engaged on this issue, mostly leaders from Latin America and the Caribbean, Southeast Asia, Africa, these are the countries and regions of the world that have really been champions of what we call humanitarian disarmament in the past. So it was a matter of bringing those countries together that we knew had practice and knowledge and community building on these issues together with activists from the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, ICANN, which had been founded in 2007 to pursue nuclear disarmament, but really coalesced around this idea of a treaty banning nuclear weapons through the UN after 2010.
0: When you started moving forward, was there any particular response from longstanding activists or people who may have engaged in this pursuit in the past that perhaps was not supportive of the idea of taking this route to nuclear disarmament?
1: Absolutely. There was a lot of people that were concerned that doing anything without the nuclear armed states would not be effective. Some worried that it would let them off the hook, that it would just add obligations onto non nuclear armed states that have already committed never to develop nuclear weapons. Some articulated concerns that it could undermine the Non Proliferation Treaty or the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty or other international agreements that had already been reached on nuclear weapons or that it would detract attention away from the pursuit of elimination of existing arsenals. So yeah, there was was definitely critique from the nuclear armed states, from nuclear supportive governments, but also from activists in the anti-nuclear movement, for sure. How
0: did this roll forward? What were some of the initial goals and what were some of the benchmarks that were met in the process of moving forward towards this ban?
1: Well, one of the first things that we put concerted effort into was really educating a new generation of diplomats and government officials and also activists on the humanitarian and environmental impacts of nuclear weapons. Of course, there'd been a lot of work on this done in the 1960s and the 1980s, But new generations of actors working on these issues weren't as familiar, I think, with a lot of that work. And there was a lot of scope to update studies on environmental impact and impact on economics and on food production and on climate as well in the context of what we now know about climate change. So really amplifying a lot of that material, bringing together UN agencies in a way that hadn't been done before as well, the UN Environment Protection Programme, The UN programs dealing with protection of civilians and human rights and the International Committee of the Red Cross So having all of these bodies as humanitarian aid agencies or environment programs speak together to say that there was no possible way we could grapple with the effects of nuclear war or even a single nuclear weapon detonation and what impacts that would have on our global society. That was where we put our attention initially, because that was what really turned the tide for landmines and cluster bombs, was focusing on humanitarian impacts, moving the debate away from abstract discussions about military necessity and geopolitical strategic needs and things like that, and really focusing on human beings. And so we moved through three conferences, global conferences hosted by Norway, Mexico, and Austria on the humanitarian impacts of nuclear weapons. At the same time, we were holding regional meetings around the world to bring together diplomats and other government officials to talk about these humanitarian impacts issues, but also to talk about what legal and policy lines that they could take globally and building up a global community of actors that was really ready to take action on this issue in the face of pressure from the nuclear armed states and from naysayers that we were contending with as well.
0: Was there a particular turning point in this process where you suddenly saw that you were going to be able to get the acceptance in the United Nations, that initial vote that was taking place?
1: Yes. In 2016, the UN held a open-ended working group, which is, you know, kind of UN jargon, for a group that was convened in Geneva at the UN. And it was open to all states to participate in. The nuclear-armed states boycotted it as they boycotted each of the humanitarian impact conferences before then. And the sort of the nuclear supportive states or the nuclear umbrella states they are sometimes called the ones that include U.S. nuclear weapons in their own security doctrines. So that's NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, as well as Japan, South Korea, and Australia. They all did participate in this meeting but in some senses were there almost as proxies for the nuclear armed to speak out against the treaty. And it, But this meeting in 2016 was really the first time that the treaty was openly discussed as a major point of policy concern, as something that countries in the world wanted to pursue. And it was at this meeting where there was a vote in August 2016 around whether or not this would be agreed upon in the outcome of this meeting to note that this treaty was something that the majority of countries wanted to pursue. And there was overwhelming support for including it at this meeting. So that was sort of when many of us realized that this was definitely going to happen. It then went to the UN General Assembly where it was voted on in October and December a resolution to initiate negotiations. And once all of that was in place, once countries had gone on the record as saying they wanted to develop this treaty, we knew there was no coming back from that moment. On July 7,
0: 2017, 122 countries at the United Nations adopted the treaty. You were there, I was fortunate enough to be able to interview Heidi Hutner, who was in the room where it happened, when it happened, less than an hour after it did happen. So I have that captured in terms of the excitement. But what was the sense of history or accomplishment, or was it just, well, this is done, now we're on to the next?
1: No it was a, it was absolutely an, a historic achievement. It was amazing to be a part of that in that room. There was definitely a sense of of celebration, not of self-celebration that we did this, but gratitude from governments towards the activists and vice versa celebration of the Hibakusha, the atomic bomb survivors, many of whom were in the room with us. Setsuko Thurlow, who's a Hiroshima survivor, gave some of the closing remarks and just moved the entire room to tears of all these governments and all these activists in noting that this moment was really a turning tide against nuclear weapons. And more broadly than that, a moment in history where The majority of countries in the world stood up to power to change something, to change international law, to stake a claim that this is an immoral situation that we've let fester collectively for decades, and we're not going to tolerate it anymore, and we're going to take action. And the implications of that for international relations beyond the nuclear question, I think, is yet unknown, but will surely have impacts in ways that we can't imagine right now.
0: In that July meeting, There were 122 countries that adopted the treaty, but then it had to go to a ratification process. What is the difference between the two and why did it have to go to this next
1: step? So the adoption of the treaty at the UN is a matter of governments saying that they support the treaty they want it to exist in international law. The ratification process is a national process that each country has to go through. It's different for every single country. It depends on how their national legislature works. For most countries, it's a process of taking the treaty to parliament, having a debate and going through what it means, adjusting any national laws to make sure that the country can be in full compliance with the treaty once it's entered into force and making sure that the government is ready to implement it in full. And then it has to go through to the executive offices of the government, whatever the configuration might be in the country. So that's usually a process of being signed and endorsed by a president or a prime minister or however the structure works. And then that is brought to the UN to be deposited. So there's many, many steps that most countries have to go through. For some, it only took a few months to complete that process. For some countries that were champions of the treaty, it took several years to go through all of the legislative processes. And there are still many that uh, have been very committed to the treaty from the beginning that are in that process. And so even though that now we have achieved the 50th ratification for the treaty to enter into force, there's still going to be many more that join the treaty after this point.
0: While this process was going on in the countries, what was the core group of activists who had been such motivators for the treaty to take place? What did your work consist of during that time?
1: We had several campaigners that were focused on entry into force efforts, so um, many of the activists that were within the countries that we knew wanted to join the treaty would be regularly meeting with, calling up their government officials, making sure the process was on track, speaking at different debates and making public commentary on the treaty, etc., to help facilitate the process along and helping us to secure the 50 Within the countries that do not yet support the treaty, so that's the NATO countries and other nuclear supportive countries and nuclear armed states, our activists there have been engaged more at the city level, getting city councils and mayors to say that they support the treaty and calling on the federal government to join. So we've had an ICANN Cities Appeal that has taken off across the United States and Canada, across Europe and in Australia and many other places. We've also been working with parliamentarians at the national level so that we can have debates within parliament and on the public stage to counter the official government perspective on the treaty. And we've also been working to... Reach divestment on nuclear weapons. So, this is another lesson learned from banning landmines and cluster bombs, but also the work that's been going on around fossil fuels and other industries that are destructive to society and human health and the environment um, is to remove money and economic incentive out of the companies that produce these weapons or these products that cause. So we've been working with banks and pension funds and other institutions, financial institutions around the world. We've had great success with that. Some of the biggest pension fund holders in Europe, for example, in the Netherlands and Norway, um, have already withdrawn funds from nuclear weapon producers. Many of them have cited the treaty in doing so, saying this will soon be international law. Um, And so we're moving our money now. And we can imagine that once the treaty has entered into force next January, that work will become even more amplified as we go forward.
0: Have you been working along with the group Don't Bank on the Bomb, or is that running parallel with the program
1: you have? It's a project of ICANN. Um, it's run by one of ICANN's steering group's members, PAX, which is a Dutch Peace Organization. So they're the ones that have uh, run the Don't Bank on the Bomb project, and that is completely integrated with ICANN's work.
0: About two weeks ago, when the ratification process stood at 47 countries, Donald Trump sent out a letter from the United States urging countries that supported the United Nations Treaty to ban nuclear weapons, to ditch the pact before it reached 50 ratifications. How did you first learn about that piece of communication and what was the response to it that you heard back from the countries that received it?
1: Yeah, that was uh, quite an unprecedented move as far as we know. Um, There was a lot of shock and dismay It got covered by Associated Press and then picked up by news agencies around the world. And there was a lot of concern from governments about what this meant for the U.S.'s approach towards state sovereignty, which it claims to have a strong commitment to, and yet in a very patriarchal, patronizing, and really racist way, The U.S. government was telling all of these countries of Latin America and Africa and Southeast Asia that they had made a strategic error in joining this treaty, as if they didn't know what they were doing in negotiating this treaty and adopting it and now sending it through this intensive ratification process their national legislation. So really outrageous behavior and really signaling how frightened the nuclear-armed states are of this treaty. The US has been the most public in its pressure on states not to join, but we know that other countries have also engaged in pressure against governments to first, it was not to give any credence to the humanitarian debate around nuclear weapons, then, it was to not support the establishment of negotiations of the treaty, then, it was to not join the negotiations of the treaty, then, it was to not adopt the treaty. And then it was to not join the treaty. So this, there's just been the same pressure at every turn. And at every turn, these governments have said, no, we're doing this. You cannot stop us from doing what is morally and ethically correct and taking a real stand against all of this pressure. And we can see in the ways that the nuclear-armed states talk about this treaty, the way they try to claim that it won't have any bearing on them, that it won't be binding on them, that it won't create international customary law, as if they can just decree that themselves. It really shows that they know that the normative effects of this treaty, regardless of whether they sign or ratify it themselves, are going to be immense. We have seen this work with, for example, the Landmines Treaty, which the United States has still not ratified. And yet the U.S. under Obama declared that it would stop using landmines other than in the demilitarized zone between North and South Korea. And it stopped selling landmines. It stopped manufacturing and selling cluster bombs as well, even though it's never ratified that treaty. So we can see the ways that over time, the stigmatization impacts that international law has, even on countries that refuse to be bound by the treaty are still very, very impactful. And the thing that's really important to recognize with this treaty and with any other is that these changes are not immediate. So for the detractors that we spoke of earlier that said that it wouldn't have any impact if the nuclear armed states weren't part of it, they're only thinking about immediate near-term cause-effect day one to day two. And that's really short-sighted and doesn't really reflect the way that social change works, which is a very iterative process, which will be met constantly by pushback and has to be defended and built upon. And it's really something, it's a collective project that will be ongoing for many, many years. There's been no illusions that this treaty eliminates nuclear weapons overnight. But the idea that it won't have any impact on the possession of nuclear weapons is just as farcical, because really what we're looking at is long-term change, and we cannot predict what path this will take in the future. But we know that having this tool now in our toolbox puts us in just such a much more powerful position than we were before July 2017.
0: I first became aware of your work because I was on two different Zoominars last week and was very impressed with what you were talking about and the specificity. On Saturday, October 24th, I was watching you and you were saying, well, we've had 49 ratifications so far and the 50th is imminent. I'm actually checking my cell phone. And I thought that was hyperbole. I thought that was going, yeah, well, you know, 10 days, two weeks, something like that. And less than an hour after it finished, All of a sudden, I got an email, I got a text, I got calls, I got Facebook, everything, and we were all dancing the happy dance. What was it like for you?
1: Definitely also dancing the happy dance. Um, It was quite a stressful few days building up to that. Some of my ICANN friends and colleagues were in constant communication with the final few missions that we knew were coming through in those two days. And they were really hoping that this would happen on Saturday the 24th because that is United Nations Day. And so UN Day marks the day that the UN Charter entered into force. And so to have the 50th ratification of the TPNWs, which would trigger the entry into force of that treaty on the same day that the UN charter entered into force, was extremely symbolic. So they worked very hard in the ICANN team and um, at the government mission to make that happen. And it was just such a celebration when it did happen. And we managed to have a campaign-wide Zoom call that <laughs> evening. So for some people, it was the middle of the night. For some people, it was first thing in the morning. For us in North America, at least it was the evening. So yeah, it was a good time to to get together as a campaign and, and mark this achievement. And then to immediately start planning for the entry into force and, and what that will mean um, moving forward in January.
0: I want to get to that point. But before that, what was the media response that the ratification actually had? What was the impact? I know I have my perspective from the United States, but what did you see?
1: Globally, it got quite a bit of media coverage. And I think most of it, I would say, was positive about this. There's, of course, still the tendency for a lot of the mainstream outlets to give weight to the nuclear armed states commentary. So reaching out to the State Department or or others, depending on where they're based, to get their comments on the treaty. But what we've seen over time, I think, is a shift from the media. For the most part, this is not... 100%. But I've noticed a shift from kind of skeptical reporting on this idea to now an acknowledgement that this is international law. This has to now be contended with. This is no longer pie in the sky. The nuclear armed states didn't actually manage to shut it down and prevent it from happening. They didn't manage to prevent it now from entering into force. Now it's something they're going to have to deal with. And so a lot of the media, I think, is, is slowly getting there and recognizing this fact. At the same time, of course, there's still the fact that a lot of mainstream media is is very corporatized and very tied to government interests in many cases. And so there's still a lot of incentive to play down the possible impacts that this treaty would have. But we're seeing more and more journalists interested in this and kind of astonished by it. On January 22nd, when it moves into
0: effect, when it moves into force of law, what does that mean and what are the preparations that you and the others are going through now to get ready for that?
1: So what that means is that it will now be legally binding on all of the states that have ratified it. From there, the sort of normative impacts that I discussed earlier um, will become even more amplified because once this is officially international law, then it takes on that life of its own in a way that that other treaties do. What we're going to be focused on is, of course, marking the event with celebration, getting as much media coverage as, as we can, but also highlighting the this treaty within the nuclear armed states and and within the other governments that support nuclear weapons, making sure that the public is aware of this treaty and of their own government's positions around nuclear weapons. And this this treaty gives us an opportunity to take what are often abstracted conversations about nuclear weapons and really be clear that if your government is not part of this treaty, then it's saying nuclear weapons are okay it's accepting that nuclear weapons exist. There's nowhere to hide anymore once this treaty is enforced. And so taking that message to as many different countries as possible will be part of our efforts. After the treaty enters into force, also one of the things that will happen is a meeting of states' parties will convene within one year. And so we'll be working with uh, states' parties to prepare for that meeting. They're going to have some decisions to take then around certain provisions that were in the treaty that they set up to discuss once they start convening as states parties, once it's into force. So it'll be a lot of that kind of work going on too. But for the public work, I think we're very keen to, to make sure people know that this is a real thing that their governments now have to grapple with.
0: What are the changes? What are the specifics that are prohibited by the treaty?
1: It is unlawful under this treaty to develop nuclear weapons, to possess them, to test them in any form, to use them or to threaten to use them, to deploy them. It's also unlawful to assist or encourage any other country in in any of those activities. So that is particularly important for those, for example, within NATO that are part of the NATO nuclear war planning group. If a NATO state were to join, they wouldn't be able to be part of that group. They would need to renounce nuclear weapons and not facilitate the use or threat of use of nuclear weapons in any way. It's also relevant for the NATO states that host U.S. nuclear weapons on their soil. If one of them joined the treaty, they would have to get rid of those nuclear weapons. Even though they don't themselves possess them, they would still have to remove them from their territory. It could have implications as well for transit of nuclear weapons through other state territories or docking on submarines and things like that. So there's all kinds of ways that this treaty can also impact international relations and the sort of commonplace things that people aren't even aware that are going on in the world in terms of the movement and the active deployment of nuclear weapons that happens 24-7. So we'll have to grapple with all of that moving forward, too.
0: With the work that's required to move this forward, what, if anything, might listeners of Nuclear Hot Seat, who literally are around the world in 123 countries, what might they do to help support this and help you get this treaty into force even further?
1: Well, I think if you're in a nuclear armed state, definitely the work around pushing for Abolition is extremely key. So we have, as I described earlier, the I Can Cities Appeal. We have a parliamentary pledge that you can get politicians to sign up to. In the U.S., it's called the Congressional Pledge. So doing that kind of work, doing the divestment work, but also getting involved in other kinds of activism against nuclear weapons, whether that's speaking at universities or town halls or writing op-eds or going to nuclear weapon facilities and doing protests and education around that is really, really key. There's a lot of this work that's ongoing already, of course, and has been for decades. And so this is a moment with this treaty to really amplify a lot of that work and to engage in it and connect it up to the other work that's going on right now around the world against other structures of violence. There's a lot of ways to connect the anti-nuclear movement to the movement to mitigate climate change and to preserve ecology and prevent further loss of biodiversity. There's ways to connect the anti-nuclear movement up to movement, for example, in the U.S. to abolish police and prisons and to end gun violence. All of these actions that are fundamentally about needing to invest in care and well-being and health and education as opposed to tools and technologies of violence are completely compatible with the anti-nuclear movement. And I think this is a really energizing moment of this activism that we see around the United States, but also in many, many other countries right now, that we can really connect up and make sure that our work is supportive and integrated and looking ahead to a future that works for as many people on the planet as possible, which nuclear weapons speak directly against. If people
0: would like to have support materials, or if there's a handbook, some of the talking points that have been used and could easily be picked up and integrated by someone who really wants to get involved in this, is there material available? And if so, where can they find it?
1: Yes, the ICANN website is your best place to look. It's ICANNW.org. That has a lot of different materials, publications, pamphlets, handouts, and breaks down information about the treaty in a really accessible way. Um, It's also where you can find all the information about the city's appeal. So that's at cities.icanw.org. We have a study out on the ways that universities in the United States are connected to producing nuclear weapons. That's at universities.icanw.org. So there, yeah, there's a lot of material out there on this, on the ICANN website. Anything you can think of that we haven't covered that you'd like to add at this point? I think the main message for people is really that with this treaty, as with so much else that we are confronting right now, I think one of the most important things we need to hold on to and really tell ourselves every day, because it's easy to forget, is that What's possible in the world is really only limited by our own imaginations. We're told over and over again by the powerful, so-called powerful, by the elite, by the ones that are profiting from our current system, that this is the way things are, and this is the way things work, and this is the way things will always be. And we just have to accept it, and we can kind of tinker around the edges to try and make it a little bit better here and there. But fundamentally, this is it. This is our world. And we need to reject that. All social movements throughout history, any of the changes that we've achieved for social justice have been from people that have refused to accept that have refused to accept the idea that this is just the way things are. And this is what we've done with this treaty is refuse to accept that. And it's what everyone working for social justice around the world is saying. And we really need to hold that in our hearts and our minds at all times that we don't have to accept what we're told is possible. We invent what is possible.
0: You make my heart feel very good. Ray Atchison thank you so much <laughs> thank you so much for the work you have been doing for all these years and of course that extends out to the entire ICANN, united nations whatever the groups are whatever the individuals are who have worked on it and especially thank you for this very thorough understanding of a very important moment in our history and for being my guest this week on nuclear hot seat thank you so
1: much
0: that was ray atchison She is Director of the Disarmament Program of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom, WILF, which is the oldest women's peace organization in the world. We'll have links up on the website to the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, or ICANW.org, and especially the two programs Ray mentioned, one to get your cities to support the treaty and the other for universities. That will be along with resources you can use in presentations that have been put together by ReachingCriticalWill.org. As a side note, Ray Acheson has a book coming out in January, and we will keep you up to date on that as well.
2: Activists. Activists, shout out, shout out, shout out.
0: First, there were a few inaccuracies that slipped into last week's interview on the climate change nuclear connection. Know that we are working to find the best way to get that corrected information to you and hope to have it within a short time. And unbelievable but true, Nuclear Hot Seat is going to hit its 500th episode on January 19, 2021, just in time for that U.N. treaty to abolish nuclear weapons to take force. For that show, I'm planning a bit of a look back with clips from previous episodes. So if you have a favorite moment, a favorite episode, something either profound or funny, but that has stayed with you, let me know and I will do everything I can to include it. Send your suggestions to, same as always, info at NuclearHotSeat.com. And if you can, include specific information such as the number of the episode, the date, and this would be fabulous if you could help me with it, the time when that notable exchange or that portion took place. I know I've got the ones that I'm planning on, but I want to know yours as well. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, November 3rd, 2020. Material for this week's show has been researched and compiled from nuclear-news.net, deunrenard.wordpress.com, which is another word for Hervé Courtois, my favorite Frenchman, Beyond Nuclear, the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, the Salt Lake Tribune, Deseret.com, NHK.OR.JP, Jean JapanTimes.co.jp, The Diplomat.com, Reuters.com, straitstimes.com, World.KBS.co.kr, RNA News.EU, Rabble.ca, Marianne TheReader.MITPress.mit.edu, GlobalZero.org, and the ever-co-opted Nuclear Regulatory Commission. Hey, we do this show every week, so if you want to make sure you don't miss a single episode, there's an easy way to do it. Go to NuclearHotSeat.com, scroll down to the yellow opt-in box, put in your first name, put it in email address. Once a week, that's all, we don't bug you. Once a week, we will send you an email with a link to that week's show as soon as it posts and a brief list of some of the items that you will find in it. If you prefer, you can also subscribe on any of the major podcast platforms because we are out there everywhere. And realize that you, who are listening to this, are the eyes and ears on the ground in all your various locations that this show relies upon to be kept up to date on everything that's happening. So if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com, spell it out, we'll put it in the queue, we'll see if we can follow up and get that information out to everyone else. This episode of Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Heartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed, as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Heartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating. That, as former Soviet Prime Minister Nikita Khrushchev famously said of the aftermath of a nuclear war, the living will envy the dead. To which we add, let's not ever find out for real. There you go. That has been your nuclear wake up call. So do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.
1: Nuclear hot seat. seat. What are those people thinking?